Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now here's Pastor Jeff. Hello to everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the podcast. Hey, I want to give you a brief update and praise report on this Bible study series that we're doing in this podcast, uh, just for a moment before we dive into the study. But in the first three months or so, we're now approaching some 4,000 listens. And let me just say, first of all, thank you very much for tuning in to this program. Uh, But I want to let you know that in addition to the United States, our listeners include friends in the countries of Japan, Australia, Greece, Germany, France, Belgium, Britain, Canada, Sweden, Singapore, Belize, Nigeria, Israel, New Zealand, and Romania. Can you believe that? So again, thanks to everyone for tuning in, although I did notice that no one in Italy has been listening, and I've been to your great country a few times now, so somebody in Italy needs to represent In fact, if any of you have Christian friends in Italy, please text them and tell them to get on board. And I've spent time in Jordan and Egypt, and so the same goes for you as well. Just kidding. Kind of. In one of the earlier messages, I had made brief mention of how I had been the witness to the brutal murder of a young man. This is several years ago. And I had shared that I ended up testifying in four separate trials of the four different assailants, all of whom were convicted. Uh, To kind of further expand on that story, as I was driving home late from work uh, one night, I saw four men attacking another man in a grocery store parking lot. As I pulled into the lot, those guys jumped into their car and sped away. The young man that had been stabbed uh, had been stabbed like three dozen times, and he ended up dying, unfortunately, en route to the hospital. Because it was late and dark, I didn't get a great look at the guys themselves, but I got a pretty good look at the car. And along with that, the victim had been speaking to his girlfriend on one of those outside wall-mounted payphones. So when I pulled up, the phone receiver was still dangling in the air. Based on my description of the assailant's car, one of the many police officers on the scene recognized my description and that that was a vehicle that he had pulled over a couple of nights earlier. Police officers then went to the resident where that car was registered and spoke to the owner. She didn't know why the officers were there, and so she told them that her younger brother had borrowed her car on the night in question. When those officers were given permission to look inside the car, they found blood on the back seat and proceeded to arrest her younger brother. His first name was Renee. Now, the girlfriend on the payphone who had been speaking to the victim at the time of the attack could hear it all taking place over the phone. I can't imagine that, but she could hear it. And as the phone dangled in the air, she heard someone say, that's enough, Renee, let's go. Well, then at the four trials, there were three key pieces of evidence that brought about the convictions. There was my eyewitness description of the car and to some degree of the men. There was the girlfriend's ear witness account of hearing some of the words spoken, including the name Renee, 
and then there were the traces of the victim's blood on the back seat of the car. After Rene was arrested, he ended up testifying against his three friends in the trials in exchange for a lesser sentence. So in the end, the evidence, the witness, and the testimonies were all so overwhelming, all four men were found guilty and convicted. Well, here now in 1 John chapter 5, we return, and the Apostle John brings forth the evidence, witness, and testimony for Jesus Christ being the Son of God, the Savior, and the only way to eternal life in heaven. Back in Deuteronomy 19.15, we read that under Old Testament Jewish law, the testimony of two or three witnesses was required to establish a truth or to convict someone of a serious wrongdoing, like murder. The Apostle John then introduces for us three undeniable witnesses which testify to the truth about Jesus. Three are in heaven and three are on earth. As these witnesses testify to us as humanity, we are left with one of two choices, to either believe God's witness and be saved or to reject God's witness and face eternal judgment. Listen, please, because this is important. People don't end up in hell because God rejected them. They end up in hell because they rejected God. Again, we're back in 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to pick up our reading in just a moment uh, in verse 6. And when we last left off, we had read in verse 5 that the genuine believer who overcomes the world by faith is the person who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And now John continues writing about Jesus, and he says this in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And then there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. We're going to pause right there. We will read a couple more verses, but the title of this message is as God is my witness. I chose that title because as we'll see in verse 9, John writes that this is the witness of God. That phrase, as God is my witness, is sometimes used by people to try and strengthen their statement or claim, and that what they're saying is true, kind of like taking an oath while giving testimony. You might also remember those words from the movie Gone with the Wind with Vivian Lee in the role of Scarlett O'Hara, and she declares just before the intermission, as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. What I do remember about that movie is like four hours long, and so by the intermission two hours in, like Scarlett, I was pretty hungry myself. Well, as John talks about this witness in heaven and on earth, it's helpful to remember the background of these epistles and the heretical doctrines of Gnosticism and other false teachings that were making their way around there towards the end of the first century. Among the many false claims was that deity and humanity could not exist together in one person. Therefore, Jesus allegedly wasn't God. Others claimed that a divine spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism and then departed from him before his crucifixion, which would nullify the spiritual value of his death as well as his birth and incarnation. Today we're dealing with masses of people who just deny Jesus outright, or they reduce him to nothing more than a prophet or 
a historical person or a good moral example. Or else people are following an empty religion that denies the deity and salvation of Christ. As we'll see here, we have the testimony of God the Father and the Holy Spirit regarding the truth about Jesus. It is, in fact, the truth that will determine where we spend eternity based upon our response to this truth. John uses various forms of the word witness and testimony some nine times in verses 6 to 11. Witness and testimony both come from the same Greek word, which describes a witness who has, quote-unquote, firsthand and personal knowledge. Our first point, then, is the witness of earth. If you're taking notes, the witness of earth. In verse 6, then, John calls his first witness water, and he's referring to the baptism of Jesus at the Jordan River, which began his public ministry at the age of 30. Now, some have suggested that this witness of water that is referenced here, along with blood, is referring to the moment at the crucifixion when one of the soldiers pierced the side of Jesus to verify his death, causing water and blood to flow out of his side. However, that's not what John is referring to here, because water and blood coming from the body of Jesus would not demonstrate his deity. It just simply confirmed his death. Therefore, it was not a divine witness on earth or from heaven. And therefore, John's reference of water is to the public baptism of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. When Jesus came to be baptized of John at the Jordan River, John bore witness of Christ's deity by declaring that he was not worthy to baptize Jesus, let alone untie his sandal lace, knowing that Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. But more specifically, the divine witness is actually describing Jesus coming up out of the water at his baptism and the Holy Spirit immediately descending upon him in the form of a dove. On one of our many trips to Israel, we were meeting at the Jordan River, at a spot in the Jordan River, at a site that is believed to be in the area where Jesus would have been baptized. At the precise moment that we spoke of the Spirit descending like a dove, a dove actually flew out of the trees on the banks of the Jordan River and flew right over our heads. It couldn't have been timed any better. In fact, it was so well-timed that someone joked it was animatronics like at Disneyland. Not only did the Spirit descend upon Jesus at his baptism, but the Father also spoke from heaven declaring, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Not only was that a clear picture of the Trinity, it was a clear witness that Jesus is the Son of God. From his birth, to his baptism, and on to his death, Jesus always did the things that pleased and honored the Father. And as an important point of application, that should be our desire as well, to live our lives in such a way that we please the Father and we honor the name of God. Well, John calls his second witness after the water, he calls the witness of blood, which describes the shed blood of Jesus on the cross as he was atoning for the sins of the world. You might remember that just before the cross on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was speaking with Moses and Elijah about his impending death and departure. And John, the writer of this epistle, was there as a witness once again. And the Father's voice spoke from heaven a second time and declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The witness of the water and the blood kind of form bookends to the public ministry of Jesus. He was baptized at the very beginning of his public ministry, 
while his shed blood and death on the cross closed his public ministry, and in both cases, the father declared that he was well-pleased. Hey, here's an interesting side note. The only one of the four gospel writers who didn't record the transfiguration was John. But the only gospel writer who actually witnessed the transfiguration was John. It's a good reminder to us that the Holy Spirit is the true author of Scripture. As Jesus bled and then died on the cross, the supernatural elements and events there at Calvary also bore witness to who he was. This would include those three hours of supernatural darkness, the great earthquake with giant rocks splitting in two, the tearing of the veil in the temple, and those saints who rose up from the dead. It's no wonder that that Roman centurion overseeing the crucifixion declared, truly, this was the Son of God. And if this wasn't witness enough, there's also the many prophecies from the Old Testament that were fulfilled when Jesus was crucified and died. They would include prophecies like none of his bones being broken, the soldiers gambling, casting lots for his clothes, and Jesus having his hands and his feet pierced. And of course, the greatest prophetic fulfillment that he would die for our transgressions. Staying in verse 6, John calls his third witness to the stand, and it's the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was there with Jesus at his baptism and his crucifixion, and the Holy Spirit bears witness to Christ. You and I were not there when Jesus was baptized or when he hung on the cross, but the Holy Spirit was. In fact, know this, the Holy Spirit is the only person active on the earth today who actually was there when all of these things took place. He's therefore the most reliable eyewitness. John then adds, the spirit is truth, and therefore he's incapable of lying. In the first part of verse 7, we find our next point, second point, the witness of heaven. We move from the witness of earth to now the witness of heaven. John writes that three bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, which refers to Jesus himself. Remember John in the beginning of his gospel, he wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and then later the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it's clearly Jesus. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit. And he says, these three are one. And that's the definition of the Trinity, right? That these are three separate, co-equal, divine persons, and the three are one. The triune God in heaven bears witness to the saving ministry of Jesus. I have to shake my head at how skeptics and liberal scholars presume to contradict eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They'll say, well, this may have happened, and this didn't happen, and he might have said this, and he didn't say this, and it's like, are you serious? There were literally hundreds of human witnesses, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15. Men like John were there, and they wrote the Gospels. More importantly, the water, the blood, and the Holy Spirit bear witness on earth, and yet pompous men in their arrogance presume to contradict eyewitness accounts 2,000 years after the fact. I wouldn't want to be any of these people on the day of judgment trying to explain themselves to Jesus sitting on the great white throne of judgment. Coming now to verse 8, John reiterates that three things bear witness of Jesus on earth. Once again, the Holy Spirit, the water, and the blood, and they agree together as one, meaning that they're in perfect agreement, making this witness and testimony indisputable. Much like my eyewitness and the girl's earwitness and then the 
evidence of the blood in the car made an indisputable case in those court trials that I was referring to, just as these three witnesses do the same. They agree together. These three, the water, the blood, and the spirit, bear witness of Christ on earth. And then there are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And so here in verses 6 to 8, we have the most reliable witnesses imaginable in heaven and on earth attesting to the truth about Jesus being both the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Many years ago, a man was charged with murder, and his trial was based on circumstantial evidence. So the defense attorney came up with a shrewd ploy, and during his closing arguments, he said, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, since this is a serious charge of murder, you must find my client not guilty if you have even the slightest doubt. With that in mind, I have one final witness for you. The actual murderer will now enter the courtroom. All the eyes in the courtroom suddenly swung towards the main doors, but no one came in. Then the defense attorney continued. He said, you see, ladies and gentlemen, there is some doubt in your minds. Otherwise, you would have not looked towards those back doors. Well, after the deliberation, the jury came back with a unanimous verdict of guilty. Right after the trial ended, the defense attorney approached some of the jurors and he asked, how could you arrive at a guilty verdict when all of you looked at the doors? So you must have had some doubt. The jury foreman replied, some of us were watching your client when you made your announcement and we noticed that the only person in the courtroom who didn't turn and look at the back doors was him, obviously because he knew no one was going to walk in. Unlike that courtroom story, the star witnesses did show up both in heaven and on earth. Well, let's continue our reading now, and let's go back and pick up here in chapter 5. At uh, let's, look, let's go to verse 9, please. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has this witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. In verse 9, John points out that As we listen to the witness of men, we do so on the daily basis about issues which are far less important than the truth and the facts about Jesus. And as we listen to these men, we believe them. How much greater then is the witness of God? It's absolutely amazing that people will believe and receive the testimony of people like the skeptics and liberal scholars while simultaneously rejecting the witness and testimony of God himself. But then again, people were willing to believe that the earth was flat even as recently as the 17th century. Now, someone might say, well, to be fair, they just didn't know. Well, I disagree. If you open up your Bible, you would know. My Bible in Isaiah 40, verse 22, written about 2,700 years ago, says this, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. You would know then that the earth is not flat. As Paul wrote in Romans 3, 4, let God be true, but every man a liar, 
meaning that if the whole world disagreed with God, he would be right and the whole world would be wrong. And so then John summarizes in verse 9 and he says, this is the witness of God in which he has testified of his son. Case closed. The witness of heaven and earth has spoken. If you believe and are willing to repent and receive Christ, you will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. And if you refuse to believe that witness, well, that's your choice and your decision, and you will bear the eternal consequences of that decision. In verse 10, we come to our third and final point, which is the witness of believers. In other words, those who have saving faith in Jesus have the witness of Christ in their hearts and lives. And with this witness and testimony in our changed hearts, we too then become witnesses. Elie Wiesel, a Jewish survivor of two Nazi concentration camps, including the infamous Auschwitz, made this insightful statement, and I quote, whoever listens to a witness becomes a witness. And so for all of us who have heard and believed, we become witnesses to the truth about Jesus as well. The story is told of a Methodist evangelist in the 1800s. His name was Peter Cartwright. And on one occasion, Cartwright had been invited to speak at the church where President Andrew Jackson was going to attend. Cartwright was asked to be very guarded and careful in his words since the president would be in attendance. So when Cartwright stood up in the pulpit, he proceeded to say, I'm told that President Andrew Jackson is here today, and it's been requested of me to be guarded in my remarks. So let me simply say this. If Andrew Jackson does not repent of his sins and turn to Jesus Christ, he will go to hell. After the service, Cartwright was at the door greeting people as they were leaving the church, and Andrew Jackson came walking up. Jackson shook Cartwright's hand vigorously and said to him, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could conquer the world. We need to be courageous in our witness. Now, in contrast to believers and being witnesses, there are those who reject the witness of God. And when they do that, they are calling God a liar. God says, I bear witness and I testify to the truth of Jesus Christ. And when people reject that, they're saying, God, you're a liar. As far as John was concerned, and he was absolutely right, there's no middle ground on this. People either believe God and are saved by faith in Christ, or else they reject God's witness, calling him a liar, and then suffering the eternal consequences for their rejection. And for those who say, well, I'm still considering the evidence and I remain undecided, let me just say this, you better not wait until it's too late. The God of heaven has clearly spoken and testified, so what are you still considering? E. Stanley Jones, a well-known 20th century missionary to India, made this wise statement. He said, if you don't make up your mind, your your unmade mind will make you. Now, in verses 11 and 12, we come to one of the clearest presentations of the gospel in all the Bible. We all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world and gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. Well, now 1 John 5.11 through 12 is sort of an elaboration of that well-known gospel verse. And in the process, it couldn't be any clearer or easier to understand. Let's consider some of the truths that emerge from these two verses. 
First off, eternal life is a gift and not a reward for good works. Uh, Salvation is not the result of being christened or confirmed, dedicated, baptized, or by joining a church. It's not our so-called right to claim unless and until we repent and place our complete faith and trust in Christ alone. John writes, God has given us eternal life, and it's his gift to us to be received by faith. In heaven, we won't be up there, you know, talking to each other, saying things like, so tell me about all of your good works. Well, thanks for asking. I had so many. I don't even know where to begin. Trust me, that conversation is not going to happen. Back in late 2019, Pastor Alistair Begg gave a sermon at his church, Parkside Church in Cleveland, titled The Power and the Message of the Cross. And in the course of that message, Alistair spoke about the salvation of the thief on the cross. And well, let me just read you from the transcript of what he said. Alistair said this, think about the thief on the cross. He said, I can't wait to find that fellow one day and ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were like cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You don't know a thing about church membership, and yet you made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know. What are you doing here? The guy says, I don't know. The angel says, what do you mean you don't know? He says, I don't know. The angel says, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the angel supervisor. So just a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy says, I've never heard of it in my life. And what about the doctrine of scripture? The guy's just staring, and eventually in frustration, the supervisor angel says, well, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the only answer, Alistair said. That's the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself and trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its effectiveness, while at the same time living as though my salvation depends on me. Wow, well said, Pastor Alistair. A second thing that emerges from these two verses is that eternal life is a person, and that person is Jesus. God offers us eternal life, and in verse 11, this life is in his Son. Eternal life is not found in Allah or Buddha or Muhammad or Salt Lake City or the Watchtower Society. It's only found in the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we read in in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation and no other name under heaven given among men than in the name of Jesus. Only one person died for your sins and my sins, and only one person rose again from the dead, and he is Jesus Christ. A third thing that comes out of these gospel verses is that eternal life is a certainty for the believer. In verse 12, John plainly states that the person who has the Son has eternal life, and the person who does not have the Son does not have eternal life. And so for those listeners who are Christians, and that's most of you, I hope that you're encouraged by the words of John, which affirm your salvation and the eternal life that we have with Christ in heaven. But if somehow you're listening to this message right now and you do not have the Son of God in your life by faith, 
then I strongly encourage you to pray to God by faith, confessing that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and that you recognize that Jesus is the one and only Savior. Ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Then you will spend eternity in heaven with him. And if you pray that prayer, then let a Christian friend know about it. Hopefully you know someone that's a Christian. Let them know, I prayed to receive Jesus so that they can help you to grow in your faith. And get plugged into a local Bible teaching church and read your Bible each and every day. And let me just say, God bless you as you follow Jesus. And so until our next podcast, again, thanks for joining us and may the Lord bless you.